You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, uh, the, the title of our message as we as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 23 this morning, and now again, if you joined us for the first time, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible. So uh, we're, we're in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel this morning, and the title of today's message is Always in Crisis. Always in Crisis. Do you have anybody in your life that, that's always in crisis? It's like there's always something going on. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, maybe maybe they've lost their job and then they lost their house and then their wife left, their dog left, the cat has left. I mean, their life is like like a, a really bad country music song. They're just always in crisis. Uh, Alan Redpath uh, had once said that, that if you're a Christian, you're always in crisis. You're either in the middle of one or coming out of one or about to go into one. Well, in many ways, that sums up the life of David here in the book of 1 Samuel. He's always in crisis. I mean, it was one crisis after another crisis. I mean, already we've, we've seen that, that King Saul is hunting him down. And then on top of that, we saw that, that Achish, who was the king, the, the Philistine king who lived in the city of Gath, Achish also wants David dead. And then last week in chapter 22, we saw that Doeg the Edomite had slaughtered all of the priests because those priests were helping David. So he's always in crisis. And now this morning here in chapter 23, he finds himself yet in the midst of a new crisis. But now as we pick up the first six verses, we're going to discover what a difference prayer can make. What a difference prayer can make, verse 1. Now they, they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kayla. But David's men said to him, Behold, uh, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Kayla against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise and go down to Kayla, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. And David and his men went to Kayla and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kayla. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David and Kayla, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, by the way, that last line there about the ephod, that's there to let us know that that's how they were seeking the Lord in prayer. That, that when David would, would, would pray, there, there was the priest there, he had the ephod, so David would pray, ask the Lord, and then the priest would use the ephod as a way to find out the answer. So what we see here in these, in these opening verses is that, is that David is seeking the Lord in prayer before he goes out and attacks the Philistines. Now let me ask you this. You ever face a situation in your life that, that, that the decision is just, is just obvious? I mean, it's just obvious. You know, you're like, you're like, well, that's so obvious. I don't even need to pray about that. You know, like you're, you're driving, for example. You know, you come to a stoplight and, and then the light turns green. In that moment, you do not need to pray and be like, you know, Lord, you know, is it your will that, that, that I should go through this light? I mean, Lord, you know, just give me a sign. Show me what you want me to do. No, listen, the light's green, you go. That's how this works. It's obvious. And so uh, here's David. David hears that the defenseless people of the city of Kayla are being exploited. They're, they're being attacked by the Philistines. So what's David do? do? Does David attack the enemy? Does he defend the weak, the defenseless? No, he prays. He, he prays. Now look, on the one hand, what David was planning to do was good. It was a good thing. Listen, it is always a good thing to defend the defenseless, to, to help the helpless. And so, and so you, you would think, well, why do, you, why do you even need to pray about that? I mean, you know, common sense would tell you it's a good thing to defend the defenseless. 
Why pray? Well, as the late John Bunyan had put it, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. And by the way, it was a good thing that David did pray. Why? Well, because we read here that David's men were terrified. None of them were on board with this. Not one of them were in favor of doing uh, uh, this and, and, and going and be a part of this. So let's picture this scene in our mind's eye. Now, again, we've seen that David's on the run, right? King Saul is hunting him down, and so he's fleeing from one place to another place. So he flees to the the Philistine city of Gath, which, by the way, was Goliath's hometown. Now, as I just mentioned earlier, the king of, of Gath, his name was Achish. Achish wanted David dead, right? So now David has to flee from, 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 from Gath, and as he flees, he comes to the cave of Adullam, and he's hiding out there when 600 people join him, 600 men join him. And so now they're all hiding out in the cave. And now they flee from the cave, and now they go to the forest of Judah called Hereth. And they're hiding out there, and, 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 and it's like they're fleeing from one place to another place and to another place. And so on the one hand, uh, they're, 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 they're being hunted down by King Saul, but then on the other hand, they're surrounded by their enemies. They're surrounded by the Philistines. This is what you call being between a rock and a hard place. No matter where you turn, it's bad. Somebody's pursuing you. Somebody's hunting you down. Others are surrounding you. You have no place to go. And so now they get the news that the, 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 that the people of, of, of Kayla are under attack. And in that moment, David's men do not want to get involved. They, 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 they would rather hide out than step out. They don't want to get involved. And by the way, this is what psychologists often call the bystander effect. The bystander effect. Now, the bystander effect is, is, is a time where, where you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're, you're in the midst of seeing something happen. Something's happening right in front of you, and yet you're afraid to get involved. You're afraid to step in. You know, maybe, maybe you're seeing a kidnapping taking place. And, and, and on the one hand, you're like, you know, maybe I should do something. Maybe I should get involved. But on the other hand, you're like, you know what? Maybe, maybe that's his parents, and, 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 and maybe he's just acting out. Maybe he's just having a tantrum. And so you kind of explain it away, and you do not get involved. Or then again, maybe you've witnessed a, a violent crime right in front of you and, and, and you feel like you should do something, but at the same time, you're, 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 you're afraid to step in, you're afraid to intervene, fearing that perhaps the, the perpetrator might turn their aggression on you and attack you. It's the bystander effect. Now, by the way, the, 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 the phrase bystander effect came into to, to usage back in 1964 uh, during the, the murder of Kitty Genovese in, in New York City when she was raped and murdered in broad daylight, it, it, and there were 37 bystanders who po- passively just watched. 37 people who watched this whole thing, and yet not one of them intervened. Everyone was afraid to get involved. That is David's men. 600 of them hear what's happening. They hear the tragedy. They hear the invasion, but they don't want to get involved. They're afraid to step in. So what does David do? David prays. And then an amazing thing happens after David prays. And so you think, oh, well, you know, when he prayed, you know, then instantly the enemies were conquered, right? I mean, he prayed, a miracle took place. Everybody was wiped out, right? I mean, he prayed and, 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 and all the problems just disappeared, right? Wrong. Listen, David's prayer did not change their circumstances. No, David's prayer changed them for their circumstances. So David prays. And and all of a sudden, the people go from being fearful to being empowered. And it happened because of prayer. 
You know, R.A. Torrey had said that a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. And so after he prayed, the people were empowered, and they step out, and now they go and defend Cala. Now, by the way, the, the town of Cala, uh, what is this town? Well, Cala was a, was a border town of Judah, about 12 miles from the Philistine, Philistine city of Gath. We just mentioned Gath, remember? The king of Gath, Achish, wants David dead. And so this is a border town on the Philistine border of, of the city of Gath. And it was also 10 miles west of, of, the, of the forest called Hereth, where David and his men were hiding out. And, and so what we see is, 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 that, is that being this close to the, to the enemy's border, uh, Caleb was, was, was extremely vulnerable to attack, especially during the harvest season. When, when, when the Philistine army would, would be sent out, they, they would send out raiders to, to, to nearly every village and every town and every, and every, 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 every uh, tribe, and, and they would pillage as many people as they could. They would plunder as much as they could take. And, and, and so what we see is, is that in many ways, this reminds us how dangerous it is to get too close to the enemy's camp. To get too close to the enemy's camp. You know, and maybe, maybe there's someone in your life, and in a sense, maybe they've gotten too close to the enemy's camp. You know, maybe they're a person who, who gave their life to Jesus at one point, and, and, they were, and they were living for Jesus. They were going to church. They were going to Bible studies. They were going to prayer groups. But then little by little, they sort of drifted away from God. And little by little, they got farther and farther away from the things of God, and they got closer and closer to the things of the world. Closer and closer to the enemy's camp. And pretty soon you start hearing that they're back in the bar. They're back in the clubs. They're back doing this and they're back doing that. And it breaks your heart when you hear it. And so what do you do when someone you love is back in the enemy's camp? Answer, you pray. You pray for them. Because it, as it's been said, you, they can outrun you, but they cannot outrun your prayers. Jason Lowe Baxter had said, men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons, but they are helpless against our prayers. And so we pray for them. And so with David's example, we see what a difference prayer can make. But now with this, as we pick it up in verses 7 through 14, we see that for David and his men, they might be out of the frying pan, but as the saying goes, they're now in the fryer. Verse 7. Now it was told to Saul that David had come to Cal that David had come to Cala, and and Saul said, "God has given him into my hand, for he has shut him in, uh, shut him, sorry, for he has shut himself in by entering the town that has gates and bars." And Saul summoned all the people to war to go to to go down to Cala to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, "Bring the ephod here." Then David said, O oh Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has, has, has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy this city on my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Cala surrender me uh, and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. And David re, re, remained in the strongholds of the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Sif. And, 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 and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So again, 
David's on the run. He's fleeing from one place to another. He goes and he helps the people of Kela, now only basically to be, be betrayed by the people of Kela. Because no sooner than, than God gives him this victory over the Philistines, we now discover that his worst fears are coming true as he discovers that the king himself is closing in on him. Saul is hot on the trail. You know, and, and in the same way, has it ever happened that way for you? Ever, ever have a time in your life where it just goes from bad to worse? And you think it can't get any worse, and it does? I mean, you ever feel like, like your life could be summed up by the bumper sticker that says, it is as bad as you think, and they really are out to get you? And so it's just like it's one thing after another and one problem after another. It's like you can never get a break. You're always in crisis. And usually, by the way, that's usually when, when a well-meaning Christian comes along and they say, hey, brother, don't, don't forget that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, God won't give you more than you can handle. Kind of like Mother Teresa when she had said, you know, I know God won't give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. That's probably what David and his men were thinking. I just wish God didn't trust us so much. You know, why does this keep happening? It's, it's one thing and then another and another. So here's David. He's on the run. And he runs from this place and flees to that place. He's hiding in the forest. And now he has to flee from here and flee from there. And, and, and listen, this is a man who once served in the king's palace. This is a man who, 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 who was the general of the royal army. He was married to the king's daughter. He was living in the lap of luxury. And now he's on the run. And it's been like one thing after another, one crisis after another. And so now in verse 7, Saul discovers where, where David is. He hears where David is, and in verse 7 he says, God has given him into my hand. Some of your English translations might say, God has delivered him into my hand. That word given or, or delivered, kagar is the Hebrew. It can be translated to, to be imprisoned or to be trapped. That's what's going to happen to David. Uh, he, he's, he's in this city, but it's a barred city. It's a gated city. It can easily be shut down. It can easily be gated and shut, and he can be trapped in that city. And, and now, interesting thing about this word kagar, uh, which, which can be translated imprisoned or trapped, it can also be translated isolated or quarantined. Isolated or quarantined. And so on the one hand, this is a word that describes someone who's been betrayed and, and, and been trapped. And that's what's going to happen to David. He rescues the people of Kayla, but now they betray him. And they're going to they're try to lock up the city and, 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 and hand him over to the king. But the same word can also be translated isolated or quarantined. It's a word that's often used when somebody gets leprosy. They have to be kicked out of the camp of Israel, and now they're isolated and they're quarantined. Now, David didn't get, get, get leprosy, but he has been isolated. He, he's been cut off from the nation of Israel. He's, he's been excommunicated. He's been exiled. He's been cut off from the people. And in some ways, maybe, maybe this describes where you are. You know, you know maybe, maybe there's someone in your life who's betrayed you. Or maybe they've trapped you. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe, they, maybe they've sold you out. Or then again, maybe something's happened in your life, and, and, and now you feel isolated, and you feel alone, and you feel completely cut off. And then along comes some guy like Saul, who's all like, you know what? God's delivered you into my hands. God did this to you. You know, God's betrayed you. God's the one that's doing this. God's punishing you because there must be some kind of sin in your life. God's against you. You see, that's what Saul was thinking. He's thinking that, that God was against David. And so it's important as we read this to, to, to remember that David was God's man. 
You see, God wasn't against David. God was raising David up, and he was, he was taking Saul out. Which just reminds us, by the way, to be careful not to rejoice when, when others fall. That's what Saul was doing. He was rejoicing in, in, in David's fall. Proverbs 24, 17 reminds us, do not gloat when your enemy falls, and when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn his wrath away from him. And so David's on the run. He's fleeing from here and fleeing from there. And he, he might have gotten out of the frying pan, but now he's in the fryer. And unfortunately, as we pick it up in verse 15 through verse 24, we see that for David, things are about to go from bad to worse. Verse 15, when David saw uh, that, that, that Saul had come out to seek his life, David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And then Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and, and, and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he, and he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father will not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites, should probably never uh, trust somebody called the Ziphites. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gebeah, saying, is, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekeliah, which is south of Yeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all that's in your desire to come down, and on our part we shall surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet sure, make more sure, and, and know and see the place where, where his foot is, and he who has seen him there, for, for, for it's been told to me that he's very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, if he's still in the land, and I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they rose, and they went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And, and David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, uh, it, it, to the south of Yeshimon. So we see that, that David, he, 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 he was hiding out in the forest. Then he goes and he tries to rescue the people of Kela. They betray him. And now he flees to this place called Ziph. Now Ziph, by the way, the original meaning of, of this Hebrew word is, is melting. Melting. And, and, and that's because this was known as a refining town. Uh, uh, it, it, was, it was a place where they would refine metals. And that's because the nearby mountain was rich with, with precious metals like gold and silver and iron. It was a mining town full of, of, of smelts and, and refineries where they would take the raw material from the mountains and then they'd bring it into Ziph to be purged and to be purified and to be refined. But in many ways, I think this is also a picture of what God was doing in David's life. Because we all know that, that oftentimes God uses the trials in our life. He uses the pain and the hardships in our life to purify us, to make us stronger. Now in those days, the goldsmith would often take the gold that was mined and, and, and he would subject that gold to such intense heat, he would melt it down so much so that all the impurities would, be, would literally burn off. They, they would burn and bubble up to the top, they would skim them off, and then they would allow it to cool down and harden, and then they, they would repeat the process. They would melt it down, skim it off, melt it down again, skim it off, melt it down again, and skim it off over and over and over again until it was absolutely pure. And then and only then could they use it to mold it into something useful. But it had to be pure. If there was any impurities left in the gold, then it would be weakened in that spot and it would fall apart in that spot. And so to be used, it had to be pure. It had to be purified. 
Now, by the way, we're, we're told that, the, that the, the test that the goldsmith would use to test that the gold was in fact pure, that it was, that it was, that it was done being refined, was that, again, the goldsmith would heat it up skim it off, heat it up, skim it off over and over and over again until finally he could see his own reflection in that liquefied gold. And that's how he knew that it was absolutely pure. And in the same way, listen, that's what God does with us. He allows us to face one trial after another trial, one crisis after another crisis to go through this and to go through that. Why? Because he wants to see his reflection in your life. This is why uh, Job 23.10 says, When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And so why was David going through this? Why was this all happening to him? Why was it one thing after another for David? Why? Because God had a purpose for David's life. God had a plan for David's life. But to, to use David, he had to be purified. He had to be refined. To be useful, you have to be purified. You have to go through the fire. But now as we pick it up in verse 25 to the end, David discovers the rock of escape. Verse 25, And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, and, and so he went down to the rock and, and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. And, and, and Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As, as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have, have, have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So we can kind of picture the scene in our mind. First of all, Saul has got his entire army searching for one man, for David. And, and while his army is off searching for David, that leaves the rest of Israel vulnerable for attack. So now the Philistines are attacking from the other side. And, and what I love about this is, is that God is using his enemy to deliver his servant. It just when it seemed that, that doom was inevitable, just when it seemed that destruction was certain, all of a sudden, God rescues David by having the Philistines launch this attack on the other side. I like the way Chuck Swindoll put it. He said, he said, this was a miracle of timing. If the Philistines had attacked one day later, David would have been captured and no doubt executed by Saul. And so this wasn't just a coincidence. This was a, a, the divine hand of God's providence. God was allowing this. God was using this. And so he uses the hand of an enemy to deliver his servant. And now David, we read, retreats to a town or, or to a place called En Gedi. Now En Gedi, uh, those of you that went to Israel with us uh, the last couple of times we've gone, you may remember. Uh, en Gedi nudges up against these huge limestone hills or even cliffs uh, on the west side of the Dead Sea. And there's two streams that feed into it, causing it to become a, a, a lush oasis, a, a beautiful paradise of, of palm trees and henna blossoms like you, like you see in this picture. Just this beautiful oasis. Now, the limestone hills or, or even cliffs stand somewhere between 200 to 400 feet and they're, and they're pockmarked with hundreds of caves like you see in this picture. Just hundreds of caves. In fact, according to the locals, at one time in history, one of these caves was big enough to shelter some 30,000 people. And so it's quite possible that maybe that's the cave that David and his 600 were hiding in as Saul was looking for him. And so... Saul's looking for him. The Philistines come. Saul has to leave. And now David calls this, the, the, this place, he calls it the rock 
of escape. Really, it was a way of of commemorating that that God had delivered him, that God had rescued him. You see, the mountain wasn't his way of escape. Uh, God was. Uh, The mountain didn't rescue God. I'm sorry, rescue David. God rescued David. God was his rock of escape. And in many ways, this reminds us that that when, when the enemy surrounds you and you're surrounded on every side, you know what? God is your rock of escape. It reminds us that that when your world is crumbling to pieces, when your world is falling all apart around you, God is your rock. Psalm 31, verse 3, it says, For you are my rock and my fortress. And in many ways, this reminds us that when we're weak, when when, when you're not sure that you're going to make it, He is your strength. He is your rock. Psalm 62, verse 7, it says, In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength. And in many ways, it reminds us that when you're in the grips of despair, the the grips of depression, the grips of hopelessness, Psalm 95 verse 1 says that God is the rock of your salvation. And yet maybe this morning, maybe you find your place at a place of life where, 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 where you're a lot like David is right now in his stage of life. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're surrounded on all, on all sides. Maybe it's one crisis after another, one thing after another. Maybe, maybe your spouse has filed papers. Maybe, maybe the doctor has said that it's terminal. Maybe you've got a child that's locked up in prison. Maybe the company you work for just got bought out and you're not sure if you're going to have a job tomorrow. And it's one thing after another. Or maybe you're, you're in that refiner's fire and you're, and you're melted down and skimmed off and melted down and skimmed off and, and purged and tested. Or maybe you feel isolated, abandoned, betrayed. And I'm here to tell you that God is your rock. In fact, I'm here to remind you that God said in Hebrews 13, 5, he said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And yet, even though that's the promise of God, even though we know that God has promised never to leave us and never to forsake us, maybe uh, as you've gone from one crisis to another crisis, one trial to another trial, maybe you're starting to believe that maybe he has left you. Maybe he has forsaken you. Maybe you're starting to say the same thing that the psalmist said in Psalm 42, verse 9, when he cried out and said, Oh God, my rock, I cry, why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Reminds us of the words of of, of Margaret Rose Powers when she wrote, One night I had a dream. I was walking along the beach with the Lord, and across the sky flashed scenes from my life. In each scene, I, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One was mine, and one was the Lord's. When the last scene of my life appeared before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and and to my surprise, I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, there was only one set of footprints. And I noticed that it was at the lowest and saddest times in my life. And I asked the Lord about it. I said, Lord, you said once I decided to follow you that you would walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why you left my side when I needed you the most. And the Lord said, My precious child, I never left you during your time of trial. Where you see one set of footprints, I was carrying you. And in the same way, listen, when, when, when the enemy has encompassed you all around, when it's one trial after another trial, when you're always in crisis and you're wondering, where's God? And, and, you're, and you're wondering, why don't I see him in my life? Why don't I see his footprints? Why has he left me? Why has he forsaken me? Listen, he has not left you. He hasn't forsaken you. He's been carrying you. 
1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And so I'm here to tell you this morning that as, as, as it's been one thing after another and it seems like there's no hope in sight, I'm here to tell you that you have a rock of escape. You have a rock of salvation. That, that he is your rock. That no matter what's shaking you, no matter what storm is going on, no matter what's happening, you are standing on firm foundation. Amen? So Father, we thank you for your, your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word reminds us that, that, that as life storms beat against us and crash against us, as it's one thing after another, the bottom drops out here. There, we're surrounded over there. There's this and there's that. We're reminded that we have a firm foundation. We are standing on the rock. Lord, you haven't left us. You haven't forsaken us. So forgive us when we leave you and we have forsaken you. Help us now to turn back to the rock of our salvation. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And help us to know that, that in those times when we feel alone, it's just that you've been carrying us. And the only way we got through it was because you got us through it. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.